No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Today's podcast is a throwback Thursday to 2015 and our inaugural show at Fairleigh Dickinson University's Summer MFA Creative Writing Residency. Our first story transports us to Lake Sunapee on a summer afternoon. Sounds peaceful enough, right? Except once there, we find the narrator and his brother plotting over how to bait a porcupine. The afternoon of Googling best practices for said task leads to an examination of fear and a consideration of how similar we actually are to our furry or spiky friends. Read for us here by Becky Fine Firesheets. Give a listen to Ascension, written by Corey Johnston. If you were crowned king of the whole world, what would your first royal decree be? Oh. Uh, yeah, I'll take that. Uh, I want the food question because I want, and like I said, I want to say sandwiches. So my first decree would be national sandwich. So a national sandwich day, we have to have three sandwiches. Three sandwich, at least, yeah. At least. <laughs> Can you decree it? Can you like? Uh, yes. I know I made you do a lot of good things today, but yes, it is decreed. It's thus. Second half of our evening is Ascension, written by Corey Johnson and performed by Becky Fine Firesheets. Ascension. We were trying to get a porcupine to fight the wild turkeys. (laughs) An hour had passed since we first discovered our comrade, when my brother Chris had lobbed a frisbee into thickets surrounding the shed. I peeled back a few layers of overgrown plant, and late afternoon sun flashed briefly across the little guy's spiky head before he retreated with instinctual terror. I called to him in as melodious a voice as I could muster, then whistled some simple nonsense, but to no avail. It was summer, our annual family vacation, and none of us have much experience taming wild animals and forcing them to do our bidding. <laughs> and so we naturally enlisted the help of the internet, which offered step-by-step instructions in such plain and unironic English that it read like something out of the children's story. The story went like this. Find an oar, preferably old and heavily used by kayakers. Chop it into tiny splinters and place the splinters in a small bowl of lightly salted water in an open field near the porcupine's den. Sometime during the early dawn or late dusk hours of the day, the porcupine will find the bowl strangely tantalizing and will emerge to investigate. There wasn't much information on how to actually capture the animal, let alone how to train it to fight our enemies. We would have to improvise in that regard. <laughs> Turkeys are jerks. Rolling his finger through a dozen turkey-related news stories that further intensified our commitment to the task at hand. We didn't have an oar, none of us kayak, though my sister Erin had spent the afternoon at the boathouse down the road trying to teach our mother how to paddleboard. But they had only purchased their paddle earlier that day, so there was little hope that it could move on purpose. 
And so I snapped some branches and peeled a layer of bark off the skinny maple tree, which anchored a clothesline drying our towels and bathing suits, while Chris grabbed a white porcelain bowl from the kitchen. I placed the salty trap in a grass clearing between the shed and a screened-in porch, where we sat in rocking chairs with some bottles of beer and waited. <laughs> the thing about porcupines, though, is they have no inherent hatred for wild turkeys. <laughs> Maybe their paths are not crossed frequently enough for them to realize that turkeys are turks. Or maybe the porcupine is simply a forgiving and compassionate creature, an empathic softy beneath its weaponized skin. That would be strangely comforting, I think, that nature might simultaneously instill in this animal a weapon that can kill and a temperament that forgives implicitly. Then, even if we couldn't coax it into fighting the turkeys, we could at least be satisfied in knowing that the emotional temperament of the animal kingdom fell roughly into balance. <laughs> what exactly is our beef with the turkeys? Aaron asked, struggling to recall why exactly her brothers had selected this for the evening's family activity. Nothing really, I answered, but the pack that came through earlier didn't seem all that friendly. They ate our blueberries! <laughs> right off the tree, while we sat here and watched like a couple of suckers. <laughs> they mocked us. Just I went on, sweeping my arm in front of us in an all-encompassing gesture. There are so many animals out there. Some of them have to be jerks, or else this whole thing would be pretty dull. And do we actually think the lure will work, she asked. Well, shrug, it seemed like a good plan to me. Porcupines apparently love salt, another reason to assume they're kindred spirits. It's why they eat words from kayakers. After prolonged use, the rower's sweat seeps into the wood like brine into meat, infusing its molecules of flavor. It must be pretty tasty. The New York strip with the rotor roll. <laughs> I wouldn't bet against it, I assured her. The internet knows things. <laughs> Thus spake the almighty Google. Chris echoed, and we sit there beers. Deep down, we all knew, of course, that this was an exercise in the absurd. We were just passing the time and engaging in a little mad science, as is our right, I think, as reasonably well-educated members of our planet's smartest and most successful species. But warfare between lesser animals is not unheard of. Big bees eat little bees, sometimes so rapidly that it would turn the stomachs of even the most devoted veterans of horror films. There are tribes of chimpanzees in Central Africa that not only launch full-scale assaults on competing tribes, but will, upon victory, cannibalize the children of their dead enemies. Combine that fact with the knowledge that chimpanzees and humans share 96% of their genetic code, and it's hard not to wonder what ghastly sights littered the fields back when primitive humans first came to understand that slaughtering families in the next valley over was a pretty good way to stop them from doing the same to you. <laughs> of course, that was a long time ago. <clears throat> and if a 4% difference in genetic code can account for the totality of the human mind, all of our culture, learning, technology, our limitless curiosity, then you have to wonder if DNA is really all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> After all, there I was, embedded within a fine summer evening, drinking good beer, itself a marvelous example of that 4% ingenuity. 
And using a portable electronic device that commanded robots in outer space to direct to our precise location. Laser beams that contain information on how to best capture wild porcupines using only common household items and a dash of kosher salt. If that did count as upwards progress from our early ancestors, then surely nothing would. What tremendous luck for this porcupine, still on my under the shed, trembling in fear, no doubt, to be granted audience with creatures so much greater than itself. And the outside chance that we were unable to lift all porcupine kind into a higher level of thoughtful existence we could at least impart a couple of the essential truths that sparked our own 10,000-year journey to greatness. First, that a lot of other things out there in the world are jerks. And second, most other things will die if you cook them enough time to sharp objects. It's all gravy from there. And porcupines must be quick learners. How else could they have figured out the salivating secret of our kayak's sweat? So we sat on the porch and tried to wait out the porcupine, but our human minds, as dictated by that pesky 4%, lost interest in the endeavor after it failed to yield results, and we moved on to other things, like more bottles of beer and slabs of Vermont cheddar with crusty bread. The hours of dusk came and went, ushered swiftly into the void by the arch of a rising moon which painted the ripples of Lake Sanapee milky white. The colors of sunset bled out into a thousand pinpricks of flickering light that swam in veins of near total darkness. I lost sight of the water bowl on the lawn and the patch of woods that the turkeys called home and the small blue shed under which lay the nesting porcupine. All we could see from where we were was the face of the moon and its reflection on the lake against the backdrop of an unfathomable amount of stars. All thought of animal animosity ceased then, as the moment I had been truly waiting for all week approached. This was the 22nd year that my family had vacationed on Lake Sunapee, but I never tired of the awesome force that was a New England thunderstorm in the dead of August. How it descended like Zeus from nearby Kirsarge, as though from nowhere at all, and terrorized every part of the landscape with icy indifference, then left in its wake a layer of spent fog and mist that hung limply above the still water. It was the totality of the storm that was so captivating, the sheer thereness of it. How it filled every corner of the sky, how everything around me grew denser as though invisible weight were being piled atop each molecule, how it seemed to tap into some reservoir of energy from beyond the horizon. As I watched, a barrage of clouds, thick and gray against the night sky, moved in from the east and stamped out the moon. The trees outside sounded the reports of raindrops, and from the mountains in the distance murmured drum rolls of thunder that echoed against the walls of the porch. Breaths of wind battered the broken screen door in its hinges. The space all around us, though still dark, indeed darker than ever after the snuffing of the moon and stars seemed to stand at attention, enlivened by the threads of electricity that cackled in the next valley. Nothing compared with all that sound. Not cacophonous at all, but strangely smooth and deep, like music heard through a swaddle of thick blanket. It was not a voice of chaos, as the brute force of a lightning strike might suggest, but of order and structure. 
the sound of elements shrugging off their playful tuna and harmonizing around a note too complex to capture with human instruments. The best we could do was forked whispers of light and sonic crashes. But maybe there was a little something more, something impressed faintly upon the mind, which nonetheless remains there even after the spine of lightning has faded from its canvas of blank eyelids. Some other thing that sets our thoughts to turning, remapping whatever boundaries we might have assumed before, itself curious perhaps of what bizarre creatures might join in the harmony. In that place of anxious anticipation, I observed the opening movements of the storm across Lake Sunapi. For years, I've had a peculiar intuition, another vague shadow against a dim backdrop, that I will someday be struck by lightning during such a storm, made to answer for my rampant immodesty, no doubt. So my enjoyment of the spectacle is often lined with barely contained hysteria. After a recent near miss while driving home from work, I honked my horn and howled like a beast from the slit of my driver's side window while an ocean of rain poured the night outside. That bolt had struck the ground less than 10 yards away and had terrified me in a way I couldn't fully come to terms with at the moment. But such fear, I tell myself now, is itself just a vague shadow, the shadow of all, a cosmic equivalent of that vibration you feel in the back corners of your teeth when two faraway notes fall perfectly into unison. It's hard to know what to make of fear like that, the kind that seems to so definitively prove some truth that nonetheless evades our attempt to grasp it, which confirms an idea that we hadn't even fully formed, and yet recognize the silhouette of every flash of lightning that pierces the sky from above and every shape we trace with childlike wonder across the face of the stars. Confronted with fear like that, what is there to do but poke your head outside the nest and offer a few notes of your own, faint as they may be? The winds must have shifted while we watched, because the thunder never grew from murmur to roar, no bolts of lightning revealed themselves, and soon all those thin picks of light were emerging again from behind the veil of receding clouds. I sat there beneath the shelter of the porch a while longer after Chris and Aaron had gone to bed, sweat all down my back, but I found nothing save for the impossible distance of the stars, the hazy black of midnight the summer moons on romantic science. Switching it up, our second tale considers a different type of stargazing in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. A not-so-glam neighborhood is overrun with boardwalk empire and girls extras leading our narrator to dream of how her messy, poop-dancing, newly-adopted boxer bear could become a dog legend. As nostalgia for a neighborhood not to return increases alongside her rent, she strives for happiness in spite of the big city working against its own residents. Corey Johnston reads, A Bear is Born, written by Becky Fine Firesheets. If there were three things that you could change about yourself, what would they be? Okay. One would be 
I would be less anxious. I was shaking through the whole beginning of the show, so less anxious. Another would be, I would be a little meaner. There are times that I would <laughs> I'm just nice all the time. The last that I would change about my current self is that I would sneak more. Great. So, uh, switching it up, our final story this evening is A Bear is Born, written by Becky Fine Firesheet and performed by Corey Johnson. A Bear is Born. Anyone who lives in Brooklyn is bound to see a celebrity at some point. Being incredibly unobservant, I went five years without a single sighting. (laughs) Then, within just a few months, my neighborhood was transformed from a quiet family area into a star-studded hipster playground. Believe me, my part of Green Point was not fancy, but because there were numerous abandoned warehouses scattered along West Avenue, a litter-filled, broken strip of pavement on the East River that boasted a frightening amount of alley cats and a gorgeous view of Manhattan, quite a few television networks looking for something affordable, by industry standards, moved in. Boardwalk Empire built their 1920s New Jersey boardwalk two blocks away. Lena Dunham and her girls with great hair yet no self-esteem moved in three blocks (laughs) after. And CBS took over a warehouse down the street to film their Broadway meets television flop, Smash. Our little corner of the world had been discovered. Contrary to what you might imagine, this hubbub wasn't glamorous or exciting. In fact, it sucked. Whereas we once always found a parking spot right outside of our building, we suddenly had to park a ten-minute walk away because trailers and equipment needed the space instead. Crew crew members yelled at us for walking our dogs through their set, also known as the public sidewalk in front of our door. (laughs) Fans hoping to catch a glimpse of so-and-so clogged the delis, whose owners jacked up the price of a Modelo six-pack from $6 to $8.50. For cans, mind you, not even cans. (laughs) But we had a yard in a rent-stabilized building, a rare gem in New York City, and we were determined to keep it. This yard wasn't just our haven. Our dogs also relished it. The two of them, a mutt named Basil and a boxer named Bear, enjoyed lounging in it as much as we did, and they absolutely loved wrestling in the mulch pit we made for them in the back corner. In order to keep our yard, and swallow the neighborhood transformation a little more easily, I had a plan that was going to turn us into superstars. Or, more exactly, a plan that was going to turn Bear into a superstar, fulfilling the rags-to-riches dream I felt she so deserved. (laughs) Our our days in Greenpoint, you see, didn't begin as a two-dog family. The boxer, originally named Sarah, was one of the happiest accidents of my life. The story of how Sarah became Bear truly captures the spirit of our neighborhood more than anything caught on camera. A couple of years before this whole transformation began, my husband Dave and I enjoyed a honeymoon cruise to Bermuda. Overflowing with giddy love, we visited our local bar the night we returned home and drunk on beer, marriage vows, and personal pinball records, ran into our neighbor, John, standing on the corner with two big dogs his Rockweiler named Zeus, and Sarah, the boxer. Wait, why do you have Sarah? Dave slurred. She belonged to another neighbor of ours, a Polish man we often saw walking on West Ave. We never seen her with anyone else. 
In his typical bro manner, John said, Well, dude, I hate to lay this on you, but her owner died this morning. As we pet sweet, stinky Sarah, John explained how her owner had been an alcoholic who lived in a car in the lot behind John's house. He'd get drunk and wrestle with her, to the point that they both drew blood on one another, then would pass out in the back seat, her on top of him. John discovered the body earlier that morning, because the dog, sitting on the pavement beside the open passenger door, was barking nonstop. Apparently, her owner had died from alcohol poisoning, and his final act was to let Sarah out of the car. This was all shocking news to us. She's a good girl. I, I can't keep her, John said, gesturing at his already 100-pound Roddy, who was only a year old. I don't know what to do, man. I just can't have both dogs at my place. This breeder in New Jersey was supposed to pick him up 30 minutes ago, and now he's not even answering his phone. No, no, we, we know this dog, Dave said. We can't give her to a breeder. We'll take her for the weekend. Find someone who will spare her and, and be good to her. Right, honey? Uh, yes. Definitely, I replied. <laughs> it was a question with only one answer. But even if I had a choice, I still would have agreed. Sure, she stank. She jumped. She licked. And to be honest, I thought she was ugly. But as Dave said, we knew this dog. We could take a weekend out of our lives and find her a loving home. And little Basil would go nuts over a house guest. I should have known what I was getting into when I first saw the look on Dave's face as he listened to Sarah's story. But I'd never fostered a dog before, and honestly believed it would be a two-day commitment. <laughs> By the end of the weekend, our decision to keep her came down to a moment when Dave and Basil were both looking at me with pleading eyes, and I just couldn't say no. I blame it on the honeymoon vibes. <laughs> My love vibes had vanished by the time the neighborhood usurpers moved in, however. The TV assholes seemed to multiply by the week, and they did not seem to care at all about the current residents. I was late one afternoon to pick up the kid I babysat for, because a girl's crew member was standing in the middle of the sidewalk, arms and legs spread out, as he aggressively repeated that no one was allowed through until the scene was over. Yet another crew member yelled at me when I moved an orange traffic cone from the top of my parked car to the sidewalk. How else was I going to relocate my car so it wouldn't get towed to make room for their trailer? And soon, every local business owner followed the deli's lead and upped their prices. Dave and I would pass buffets of bagels, muffins, tiny sandwiches, <laughs> and set out for actors who made triple our income as we walked to the supermarket where we could barely afford groceries. <laughs> we even grew tired of the Boardwalk Empire extras in their satin-trimmed black suits and their bowler hats texting on their iPhones outside our building. While they were novelty at first, they quickly came to represent the money and materialism that had moved in. Sunbathing in our yard with our dogs made the takeover feel somewhat better, but our road to laid-back afternoons with Sarah had been long and hard. Basil, who took treats in this hilariously ginger way, who gave kisses by nudging us with his little wet nose, who learned new commands in minutes and then obeyed them every single time, who housebroke himself three <laughs> months old by watching the other dogs in the shelter, was my first dog, 
he was perfect. <laughs> Therefore, I had no idea what it was like to own a normal dog. <laughs> Sarah was no normal dog. She's what you call a special needs dog. Because <laughs> of her upbringing on the streets, she had worms and urinary crystals, was malnourished yet overweight. She ate random things off the sidewalk, like napkins and rocks. She tried to kill our cats. We suspect some of those alley cats ended up as meals. She slurped up our margaritas whenever we set them down in the patio, pooped inside the apartment, then peed herself when we reprimanded her. She greeted me when I came home by jumping with such force that she busted my lip and bruised my chin. She was incapable of simply sitting near us. Every time we interacted with her, she would climb on top of us and lick our faces. Oh, and because her old owner was a Polish immigrant, she didn't understand English. <laughs> it took two months, but I did finally fall in love with her. I clearly remember the moment when I first thought of her as my dog. I was washing dishes in the kitchen sink, the only sink in the entire apartment because the bathroom was that small. When she trotted in and licked the back of my calf, I turned around and there she was, big old head cocked to the side, jowls gaping, one ear perked, a multitude of wrinkles in her forehead. I knelt down and pet her, and she melted into me. I even kind of enjoyed the facelift that inevitably followed. Well, girl, there's no use in trying to predict your future. I never would have guessed as a 16-year-old living in Kentucky that I would be sitting in my kitchen in Brooklyn petting my 75-pound bear of a boxer dog. I started calling her Sarah Bear after that, and the name stuck. She'd been Bear to us ever since. By the time our street had become infiltrated with flapper girls, hipsters, and Broadway wannabes, Bear had grown into a healthy, well-behaved dog who knew a lot of tricks, and in English, no less. And unlike skittish Basil, she loved people. Considering her story and everything she'd been through, I thought she deserved the cushy life of the rich and famous. She was a star at heart, and just needed a little training for it to shine through. Besides, the neighborhood was truly belonged to her people, the Polish immigrants who'd settled in Greenpoint a century ago. And, of course, there was some selfishness involved. If they are brought in income, I could keep my yarn. <laughs> so I began doing research on how to break your dog into show business. I was not pleased by what I discovered. She needed a portfolio of photographs, a video showing off her routine, and possibly an agent. <laughs> I had a better idea that would spare us the agent hunting and take advantage of our neighborhood's current climate. Smash had just brought on Uma Thurman to play Rebecca Duval, a self-absorbed movie star who couldn't sing but was nonetheless making her Broadway debut as Marilyn Monroe. I'd always thought Uma Thurman was badass and wanted to meet her more than any of the other celebrities now working in Greenpoint. I had a plan, and it would go like this. Bear, Basil, and I would be walking down the street on a beautiful summer day. Bear would be fresh off a bath and a toothbrushing, preferably near the end of a short walk so that she'd be a little bit tired but still energetic. Uma Thurman would be walking towards us in all her blonde glory. She'd lock eyes with Bear, who would tilt her head at that perfect angle and wrinkle her forehead in all the right places. While Basil waited patiently on the curb, I would show off Bear's tricks. Paw, other paw, roll over, and catch it. Uma would laugh in delight. 
She'd rush over and scratch Bear's head, falling in such instant love that she would have no choice but to offer Bear a roll-on smash right then and there. <laughs> After impressing the directors and all the producers, Bear would be the new it dog at CBS. <laughs> Dave and I would be fielding calls for the rest of her life. I looked out for Uma every single walk. And then one day, it happened. The dogs and I had just left the apartment. We were a few minutes into our walk when Bear pulled toward the curb, tripping both Basil and me over her leash. She began her poop dance, a few frantic circles only she can see, while positioning her hind legs into a squat. This dance is a typical dog thing, but the atypical part of Bear's dance is that she doesn't stop while she poops. She'll step right on her fresh curves. As she turned in circles, I held the leash taut, forcing her to step around the corner. Good girl, Bear. Don't step in your shit. The plastic bag spread over my hand. I bent over and picked up her pile continuing the praise as she wagged her little nub. I straightened up, and there she was, Uma Thurman, <laughs> hair bouncing as she walked straight toward us. Rather than wrapping up the bag and trying to salvage the milliseconds I had before she passed, I froze, open palm filled with fresh thought. As bear tugged toward her. I stumbled, and Uma jerked away, shielding herself with her large leather bag, disgust scrunched up in her face. Basil, sitting patiently on the sidewalk, was the only one who played his part. <laughs> I hung my head, Bear's cue to jump up and lick my face. And with that, our moment was lost, just like the neighborhood. I felt deflated. It would have been better to have an absurd, never-realized dream of Bear's stardom than to have it crushed in such a disgusting and embarrassing way. Well, Dave and I still clung to our yard for another year, but... Eventually, the semi-functioning radiators, the repaired leak in our living room, the roaches who crawled up from the basement through cracks in our kitchen floor, and the busy, trendy strip we no longer recognized as our block took their toll. We traded our yard for a larger apartment in much better condition near Prospect Park, and traded the superstars for five twinkling real stars who we can see from our new rooftop. If the night is perfectly clear, and we squint really hard. But hey, the Manhattan lights blocked out all of them in Greenpoint, so we'll take it. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.